Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm really excited to be joined by Emily Polly. She is Associate Professor of History at Dickinson College and the author of The Nature of the Future, Agriculture, Science, and Capitalism in the Antebellum North. It came out back in April from University of Chicago Press and has generated lots of buzz. Dr. Polly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Uh, This is just a wonderful book. It is so incisively argued. It is so elegantly written. Um, Yet, I'll confess, I would not have expected that one of the most talked about environmental histories published this year would be a study of white farmers, (laughs) largely men in New York Mm. in the 19th century. And And, you know, I actually laughed out loud four sentences into the book because you introduced us to some of your main characters and you asked this question, were they feudal relics or profit-seeking capitalists? And, you know, that's a question that's been asked a lot in the last decade, but about Southern planters and and slavers. Um, But that's not who you're talking about. You're looking at folks who, while they haven't been ignored by historians, they certainly haven't been in fashion this century. And so I wondered if we could just start with you introducing us to your characters and, and what fascinates you about them. So I'm a historian of science, and historians of science are interested in how people make knowledge about the non-human and the natural world, right? That's uh, kind of what we do. And I'm interested uh, in two things that are a little bit different from a lot of historians of science. First, I'm interested in people who are not quite scientists, right? So people who make knowledge about the natural world or the non-human world, but who don't kind of fit our ideas of what a scientist is, who don't have necessarily that label. And I'm also interested not in the wild world of nature, but in the cultivated world of nature, right? So um, I'm interested in farmers because they are people who have quite intimate knowledge of ecosystem management. And they have to think really hard about how to feed different parts of their landscape uh, to each other in order, uh, at least in the case of the people that I study, to make a profit. So this was sort of how I got to the general, general area of farmers. I was first attracted to antebellum agricultural improvers because they were this incredibly active community of people who thought of themselves as acting scientifically. So there are global networks of agricultural societies and journals that get started in um, uh, in Britain, mostly in the mid-18th century, uh, that are sort of producing huge volumes of print and producing lots of different kinds of experts, and that really expand in the U.S. in the mid-1840s. So for the historian of science, you know, uh, improvers of the 19th century North feel like a huge community. So there's 100,000 people maybe in the U.S. in the mid-19th century who think of themselves as being agricultural improvers and who are participating in agricultural societies and participating in agricultural journals. I ended up focusing on New York State, I don't say upstate New York because I also include uh, Long Island. And I'm interested because improvement is very active there. The societies there are extremely powerful uh, because things are changing so quickly after the Erie Canal goes through. So agriculture is changing very dramatically in what um, uh, early Americanists sometimes call the market revolution. 
because there's a very wide variety of improvers. So there are huge landlords and wealthy bankers, uh, so people who might be considered feudal and also capitalists, but there are also relatively small tenant farmers and a lot of uh, different kinds of middling groups. Um, and it's just a really kind of unstable and interesting place that ends up having really big implications, I think, for uh, the spread of agricultural science in the years after the Civil War. A, a compelling question that agricultural historians sometimes ask is, is who counts as a farmer? I think that was actually the, the theme of the Agricultural History Society's conference a few years ago. Um, and you essentially argue that there was no such thing as an ordinary farmer, quote unquote, and that the identity of farmer, which many of us throw around uncritically, um, was actually a form of political performance, in, in your words. Um, that was one of these mind-blowing moments for me in the book. Um, what do you mean by that? Okay, so I should start by saying I used to get a lot of questions when I would talk about agricultural improvement in public. Um, historians would ask me, okay, so this is what the improvers are doing. What are the ordinary farmers doing? And people always use this yeah. ordinary farmers for, for formulation. And I was very anxious to find the ordinary farmers. You know, I thought, where where can they be located? And when I find an improving farmer, how will I know if this farmer is ordinary? And what I came to realize, uh, actually, is that ordinary farmer is a potent political formulation, uh, both now, which is why people are so interested in it, and in the antebellum United States, right? Farmers are supposed to be more virtuous. We know this, not just in the U.S., but in any culture where the people in power read a lot of Roman, Roman poetry. Um, and so, um, so in the antebellum U.S., as now, we see people kind of performing farmerness in a very transparent way, right? A politician wants to go into politics, they buy a farm as part of their plan, and they start participating in agricultural improvement. Or a banker wants to look stable, and they buy a farm as a way of looking stable. So it's very, very clear that some people are, um, shifting into this role in a very conscious way. 19th century people are super aware of this, uh, and they spend a lot of time accusing each other of being fake farmers, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this, this one uh, very clear space of political performance. And uh, I think as historians have spent a lot of time trying to sort the real from the fake following these debates. I think that can also, though, distract us from the flexibility of the rest of the category. So, for example, um, if we think about who gets called a farmer in the antebellum period in New York, we have this huge range. We have these huge manorial landlords uh, like Stephen Rensselaer III, who own whole counties and who are trying to establish manners of tenants. Uh, we have people, on the other hand, listed in the, listed in the census as farmers, but who are maybe working on shares uh, on somebody else's land. We have tenants who have no property at all who are listed as farmers. And at the same time, not everyone in the antebellum period uh, who works on a farm is a farmer, right? Uh, enslaved people are obviously not called farmers, but also farm laborers are not considered farmers. And there's a growing class of people who are doing physical farm labor. So... No one is actually quite secure, I think, in the category of farmer. Even people who own all their own, their own farms and devote all their time to farming have to navigate a course between being a laborer and a manager and a gentleman, right? All of the different kinds of things that farming can consist of. And I think with an improvement, we see lots of different kinds of claims about what makes someone a real farmer. 
right? And so there are all kinds of different groups, and those groups are making different kinds of claims. But at agricultural fairs, through agricultural experimentation, in agricultural journals, these different groups uh, can kind of publicly make these claims. They can buy all kinds of refined consumer goods through improving networks and kind of make a claim to being genteel or professional. And at the same time, they can publicly display their own physical labor in what I end up calling conspicuous production. And I think it's the flexibility, the class flexibility of the category farmer is what makes it so attractive to politicians and the people who are like really consciously, visibly adopting the farm identity. Because they can go to wealthy landowners and they can say, oh, we farmers, meaning us and you wealthy landowners, and they can also go to poor tenants and say, we farmers. Um, and there are these amazing moments at agricultural fairs where lots of different kinds of farmers are gathered together, where you can see a politician saying, we farmers, and see that they're speaking to all kinds of different groups at once. That's not an unchallenged category, but it's a super powerful category. Um, and so that was really interesting to me in the course of writing the book. And then in the second section of the book, you really zoom in on on the work that these improvers are doing and the, the style of the work and kind of the way they're, as you're saying earlier, the way they're creating knowledge in their own sort of by their own methods, um, both both their agricultural experiments, their, their mechanical experiences. And uh, and then they're, they're just writing about it all the time. There's this massive literature they're creating and there's all this tinkering and all this scribbling. And it's in your you, sh- you, sh- you show us that it's so ever present even when somebody like Henry David Thoreau gets around to writing his, you know, famous essay economy, that it, it was very, it's very obvious that he's, he's essentially parodying the genre that these improvers are, are creating in a way that I think many readers, we wouldn't, we wouldn't notice without, without your work and, and really being, um, you know, familiar with that literature. So I wonder if you could tell us about what Thoreau was up to um, and how he helps us characterize this, their age. So I reread Walden on a plane with a bunch of environmental historians coming back from a conference um, <laughs> after I had started doing this work. And I started cracking up reading Economy, which is, I think, not how people expect you to behave when you read Walden, because <laughs> um, I think Economy is hilarious. Um, because and you're laughing with him, not at I, him. I'm laughing yeah, with yeah, him. Yeah, yes, yeah. no, it is. It is. Henry David Thoreau is so sarcastic about the people that I am studying almost all of the time. And it was really actually in reading uh, Walden that I realized how formulaic and structured experimental writing was because I got the joke. And so I thought, oh, well, what are the features of the joke that I got? Okay, so in Economy, Thoreau writes very self-consciously and visibly and says he's doing it. He writes an agricultural experiment in the style of improvers. And we know that he's doing that because he says, uh, basically, take that, Arthur Young. And Arthur Young is the most famous agricultural journalist uh, in Britain. So when we read the experimental writing in agricultural journals, it has these very uh, clear standard features. So first, you're supposed to describe the the soil and to say sort of what are its geological features, maybe what are its chemical features. Thoreau is like, I have terrible soil. My soil sucks. It's sandy. Um, It grows pines. That's a recognized category of terrible soil. (laughs) And then you're supposed to describe the treatment of the soil. And that's a really good place to show your skill as an improver and uh, to kind of display your your capacity as an experimenter and throws like, I did nothing to the soil. 
And then you're supposed to uh, talk about the treatment of the seeds and where you got them and what kinds of seeds you use. And Thoreau's like, I got these seeds for free. And, <laughs> and eventually, uh, at the very end of all, not all, but many, many, many improving experiments, there's supposed to be a little account of what you made and a literal account, like this is how much it cost, uh, this is how much I made, and here's my profit, right, in two columns, which is a super familiar uh, a way of writing for most farmers and a lot of antebellum people just in general. So Thoreau basically does that too. But instead of saying, oh, I made a profit, he says, I made nothing. I made like seven bucks. <laughs> and still I was fine, right? So the whole point of economy is to upend all of the standard financial advice of the antebellum period. He's also very funny about buy buying a house. Um, but when you read it, you can therefore really see the shape of that, of, of kind of financial knowledge making and what is cliche. So one of the things that Thoreau helped me to see is there are tons of people writing experiments like this, uh, and I can suddenly start to see them across the whole printed literature of improvement, not just in the agricultural journals, which there are dozens and dozens of, and not just in the newspapers that are copying the agricultural journals and the almanacs that are copying the agricultural journals, but also in places like advertisements, right, where there are these testimonials that come at the end of an advertising pamphlet that also follow this formula pretty closely. Uh, and so that helped me really expand my sense of where agricultural publication was happening and where people are making knowledge and writing about knowledge. But it also helped me really think about uh, what are the things that make this kind of experimental writing different from the kinds of experimental writing that historians of science normally write about. It does have some very familiar features uh, that kind of remind me of other kinds of experiments that you people write about in this period. So, uh, for example, it's very uh, experimental writers in this period are very careful not to theorize. And they put in tons of extra details. We call this prolixity to give people the sense of actually being there and really witnessing the, the whole situation. But uh, experimental writing from improvement comes with this account. Right. This uh, this statement of profit and loss and this statement of profit and loss. When I worked backwards uh, through improving writing, it became clear that it wasn't just a little add on. It was a claim about knowledge. So if you do an experiment and the experiment turns a profit, you have found out something real about how the world works. Um, and that comes in part from your own skill and in part from kind of inbuilt capacities to profit that certain kinds of organisms have and certain kinds of landscapes have um, that you have just discovered. And it is also a sort of impartial arbiter of whether your technique has been a success. So accounting ended up being the center of a lot of knowledge making. And that, yeah, you carry that through through the whole book from there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you were in an exchange with a reader on Twitter, someone who was in the middle of the book and loving it. And you said chapter five is where things really get weird. <laughs> and yeah. that's when you uh, that's when that's where in the book where you tell the story of of the mulberry fever um, that swept the U.S. in the late 1830s. And, you know, quick and dirty, we can think about, you know, our domestic version of tulip fever, although you're very careful to, to point out the really interesting differences between the two. Um, but, you know, mulberry leaves are food for silkworms and improvers of a certain sort of dreaming of crafting, a, you know, a domestic silk industry here. Um they're thinking about the ways that cotton took off and could, could you do that in the United States with a different uh, product and, and, and thinking about, you know, 
shortening the distance from China and, and growing it in Connecticut and this. And it's it's just a wild chapter and it, and it draws, we'll, we'll never do it justice in the time we have, but it it draws this line from Linnaeus to Pocahontas to uh, Nicholas Biddle of the Second Bank of the United States. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you present the Mulberry Fever in the context of the Panic of 1837, this really, really important um, economic event in, in the antebellum period. And you show it was, it was both, you know, it was both characteristic of the speculative bubbles that were really kind of everywhere in the nation in canal builders and banks and everything else. Um, but you also claim that, you know, the Mulberry Fever was actually also the result of the panic and that the financial instability of the era made pinning one's hopes on mulberry trees and silkworms um, more appealing. I wonder if you could help us understand both of those things. Oh, sure. So, uh, yeah, this is a very weird chapter. Um, so, <laughs> so one thing we, we definitely, as you say, know about the 1830s, right, is that the U.S. economy is going up and down. And we have the bank wars of the 1830s. We have the Panic of 1837. There's another panic in 1839. Prices are fluctuating. The value of money is very uncertain. And historians of capitalism have been pretty clear about this. And there's a slight tendency, I think, to see farmers as not existing in this same world of fluctuation, right? So they get described as solid and virtuous and hard-headed and just sort of uh, carrying out the the wishes of the market or resisting it. Those are their two options. Hmm. It's actually quite interesting that this is the case because historians have known for a long time that there are a lot of what get called agricultural crazes in this same period. So there are people speculating in Durham cattle, there are people speculating in merino sheep, there are people speculating in vines and in uh, sugar beets. Um, and even at the time, these do get called manias, uh, like lo- like other kinds of uh, financial uh, kind of, uh, there are lots of financial crazes and manias in this period, and these get called that too at the time. But historians have tended to separate agricultural crazes from the normal work of improvement, from the normal work of of agriculture. We still describe them as sudden diseases or momentary lapses in judgment or moments of mass mental illness. Um, And then the rest of farming is sort of imagined as more steady. And the part of the goal in writing about silk was to show that improvement is really in that same world, right? So what we call uh, manias travel the same pathways as other kinds of financial information. They come straight out of improvement. Uh, Some of the things that are manias turn out, and then we call those reasoned. And some of them don't turn out, and then we call them manias, right? Silk is interesting because it's the biggest uh, and it really meshes with other financial bubble, bubbles. Like it leaves improvement. It becomes this nationwide phenomenon. All kinds of urban financiers, including Nicholas Spittle, are heavily invested in mulberry trees with the idea that the U.S. is going to be a silk power like China or France or Italy. Lots of countries are engaged in this same project. And although it peaks right after the Panic of 1837, it really starts in about 1826. So there's a long, slow build and then a sudden spike. The focus of this particular silk uh, craze, and this is one of multiple U.S. silk crazes, just like it's one of multiple international silk crazes. This particular biggest one is this new variety of mulberry tree. So this is called the Morris Multicollis. It comes uh, from the Philippines, from Chinese merchants in the Philippines, through international botanical networks, uh, through French botanical networks into the U.S. It's very good to speculate with because it has these very huge leaves. And the leaves are the money part of the mulberry because that's the part you feed to silkworms, right? People are already interested in silk. And so when they see these huge leaves, they kind of make uh, economic sense. 
Another thing that's very appealing about the Morris multicollis is that it multiplies at a very fast and yet orderly rate because you propagate it by cutting it into chunks. So every year it grows incredibly fast. Every year it sends up 10 feet of stem. And you can cut that stem into 10 pieces, each one foot long. And then next year, you can plant those pieces and each of them makes 10 feet of stem, which you can cut again into 10 pieces, right? And this means that the value of it is really complicated to try to work out because you can justify almost any price because the good itself multiplies by 10 every year. So this is one of the things that makes it really appealing, right? It's a biological good. It has a palpable use value. It's going to be, be better uh, than metal money. And people often compare the leaves uh, to a specie, which is really hard to get after the Panic of 1837, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so... When I say it's tied to the Panic of 1837, it's already quite well known before the Panic of 1837, right? In 1836, people are talking about Morris Multicollis. It's really spreading through improving networks. Lots of improving nurserymen are really interested in moving it around the country. But with the Panic of 1837, suddenly there are a ton of investors who are looking for a fast way to make money. And they have been hearing about this for a while. Often improving networks and investor networks are, are meshed together because a lot of kinds of social elites have uh, reason to participate in improvement. Um, and so they take up this speculative good and they just, I, I can't even express to you the scale <laughs> of the multiple bubble. It's like a million. I spent a lot of time counting ads uh, for trees in uh, the Journal of <laughs> Commerce, and and I counted a, a million. Oh. Um, in 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 I didn't count a million ads. I counted a million yeah. trees. Oh. Uh, the trees are quite small uh, by this point because they're chopping them to smaller and smaller pieces. So you might call it more of a stick, but it's a live <laughs> stick. So ultimately, uh, the the Morris Multicollis bubble collapses, um, and we tend, when we look back at it, to think of this as an environmental failure, right? It just, it seems ridiculous to think that silk would be grown in the United States. It's just not a silk place, right? Uh, <laughs> like we we have our set of organisms and we know, you know, that they're the ones that are supposed to be here. If you go into your yard and you live in the Northeast you will probably find some white mulberries, probably not Morris multicollis because it has to be propagated by cuttings, but you will definitely find some white mulberries in, uh, imported as part of silk fevers growing that will be a pain to pull out. Um, I can usually find one within 10 minutes anywhere, <laughs> right? They are everywhere. Mulberries grow fine in the US and actually silkworms grow fine in the US. And the thing that takes down the Morris multicollis, it is a, a, a uh, th- there's a lot of amazingly poor planning that goes into it. I'm not going to lie. Like they, they get a lot of trees and they don't have a lot of silkworms, for example. They are planning a second bubble of silkworms. But the thing that really takes it down is the banking collapse, uh, a second banking collapse in 1839, where a lot of investors have been paying for huge quantities of mulberry trees in um, uh, sometimes faked mortgages, sometimes uh, massive IOUs. And so as all kinds of uh, major exchange paper collapses, the value of mulberries also collapses. And then mulberries just become uh, actually a a cautionary tale. And they're compared to the tulip mania at the time, because the tulip mania is also Hmm. becoming a cautionary tale. Um, 
But I think that actually this turn to biological forms of value that we see in 1837 is something that we also see in the late 1830s uh, more generally, right? This is the moment when state legislatures start funding improvement. And this is one of the things that really lets improving societies suddenly take off and become huge uh, producers of huge public spectacles. Uh, you know, agricultural meetings where 100,000 people are going to come. Um, state legislatures are looking for forms of value. This is not the only thing that's going on, but state legislatures are looking for forms of value that feel solid. And biological forms of value and forms of value associated with agriculture kind of have this, still have this uh, kind of narrative of realness and solidity that is one of the things that propels uh, the multicolist to the, to the top. The book moves from visions of silk to visions of butter, and we meet in chapter six the very colorful character of Zadok Pratt, who sets up a large tannery in the Catskills in the 1820s, I think, and then and then when that industry devours all the local hemlocks where where it gets its tannins, he dreams of kind of rechristening or rebranding the town as a famed center of butter production. Um, and you know, you're, you're zooming out here to kind of a town level experiment, um, and you pay attention to different forms of knowledge, right? There's this, there's the sorts of knowledge that Pratt himself uses to kind of convince other people this experiment is going to work. And there are also the forms of, of, of expertise, um, largely held by dairy women on which his whole endeavor depends if you're going to make butter. Um, and so I wonder if you could sketch out, um, for both of both of them for us a little bit, and then also the tensions between them. Okay. So Pratt, uh, Pratt is one of my favorite characters. Um, uh, he is a real person and yet a character uh, because, and you should all go and visit the weird tiny Mount Rushmore that he <laughs> made of himself in upstate New York. Um, so he is, he is an outsized self-promotional character. Um, and he's also a politician and he's also a major improver and he's also an industrialist, right? He's extremely wealthy. He's a very a well-known guy. Right? He's, yeah. He, yeah, he's, he's, we could go on about uh, Pratt for a long time. But one of the things that I think is important about Pratt is actually that his forms of self-promotion with an improvement are pretty normal. And the kinds of things that he ends up claiming that sound weird when we talk about them with butter are also pretty normal uh, and, and remain in the ways that we think about how land is. So Pratt owns the town of Prattsville in Greene County, um, which uh, is where his tanneries have been sited. And he has basically uh, destroyed it in that all of the hemlock trees have been cut down and uh, the, the soil is washing down from the hillsides and the tanneries are moving on. But he still has this bank and this school system and this these churches that he's funded, right? He's still got the Prattsville. There are two different Prattsville newspapers, which are both very pro-Pratt. Um, <laughs> and so he is trying to kind of re, uh, reimagine this space that he owns and kind of create a reputation for it. And in order to do that, he wants to argue that the land of Prattsville itself is divinely adapted to the production of butter. So God made butter land in, um, in Greene County. This is actually, uh, without the God part, a really normal argument, right? We, we, lots of people still think of land as having a built-in function. When I say good butter land, you don't think what? Or, you know, we say, you know, Champagne is from the Champagne region of France, right? We have yeah. the idea that particular kinds of places produce different kinds of foods and that have particular kinds of uh, tastes associated with them. And the idea of terroir, right, is sort of founded on that. 
So Pratt is fighting to break into that kind of reputation. And in particular, he's trying to break into the reputation that Orange County has for butter. Um, The Navy in particular won't buy anything but Orange County butter. Everyone in New York who makes butter is putting their butter in buckets that say Orange County on it uh, because Orange County butter is the only kind of butter that sells. So Pratt is trying to expand the reputation for Orange County and to say, Actually, Green County is another Orange County. It, too, is destined to be good butterland. And so in order to do that, he makes a huge number of arguments about place. Uh, so he says, for example, it's covered in hemlocks. Hemlocks are a big sign of butterland. This would be big news to a lot of people because usually hemlocks are a sign of a really terrible land. So that's kind of a stretch. <laughs> um, he says the geological survey um, suggests that this would be good grazing land. And so he's able to tap into the, all of this uh, state survey work that is being done by the surprisingly wealthy state government of New York. Um, he sets up an experimental farm, a public experimental farm, uh, where he uh, he doesn't need the money at all, but they make butter and then he publicizes his profits, which he then carves into the hills in his tiny Mount Rushmore. But he also circulates news of those profits and his accounts through uh, the agricultural journals and through um, uh, like the patent office reports, which are a major publication at this time, through national newspapers, right? You can see Zadok Pratt's experimental farm in lots of different kinds of places. In order to make the argument, though, that this is good butter land, he has to ignore what butter dealers know about butter. So butter dealers... um, (laughs) When they make deals, they make deals with women. They make quite big deals with women. So butter is one of the most uh, important cash businesses for lots of farmers in New York at this time. It took a lot of uh, work by women's historians to point out that actually butter was an important um an important cash business, an important part of economies because it was tended to be imagined as women's work and therefore unimportant. So we're actually kind of rethinking uh where is capitalism to be found in mm. uh, in upstate New York in this period? But skilled butter making women, um, they take the reputation of Orange County butter to themselves, and they argue, and so do often butter dealers argue, that the thing that makes uh, butter Orange County butter is not its location in Orange County, it's the collection of women in Orange County who become expert butter makers, which is actually quite difficult to do, and who develop a particular process for producing butter that can survive tropical heat. Um, And those women and uh, the people that they train spread out across the southern tier of, um, of New York. And they claim, you know, we're calling our butter Orange County butter because we're making it in the Orange County style. That is not something that is going to help uh, Zadok Pratt create value for his land, right? He is trying to argue power in the landscape for this kind of ruined place. And so he hides the work of women in his writing. And this is quite normal also, right? So he'll say, the butter is made in the ordinary way at my farm with no special uh, kind of tricks to it. Because he needs to argue, actually, that anyone can come and make good butter uh, in Greene County. So part of the point of this chapter is to see how regional reputations that we get quite used to get constructed in the first place. And to show that what we think of as maybe state-level maps that might tell us about the adaptedness of land to certain kinds of functions 
those maps not necessarily constructed by like an, the all-seeing eye of the state, but they're <laughs> constructed by lots of little, I, th- I call them bids for attention. So there are lots of Zadok Prats saying, this is a very good wheat country here. And you see an, an improvement is often about demonstrating uh, regional reputation. Right? And part of the point also is to show that when you talk about the creation of uh, good butter land or good cheese land or good hops land. These are all kinds of lands that show up in New York in this period. Uh, human skill and human labor, and in this case, particularly women's labor, right, disappears. Um, and so we want to notice that disappearance as well. Yeah. And then and then in the next chapter, you turn your attention to fruit. And you could tell a similar story about fruit, but you're, you're doing something different in your fruit chapter. And, and you're looking at um, in, in a memorable phrase, the creation of a landscape populated from a catalog. Oh, yeah. And, and fruit allows you to emphasize um, how, you know, how important this concept of variety was to improvers. You know, variety as varieties of plants and animals um, as, as sort of a not just not just a subordinate to species, but actually a different thing, kind of in different important ways from the idea of species or concept of species. Um, and you argue that folks who are involved in, in, you know, the naming and developing and propagating and marketing of, of fruit varieties like the mouthwater pear or the northern spy apple, those are some of the ones that come up in the book, and there's tons in the book, um, that they're using strategies and they're using tools that are, like you said before, that are common to lots of actors in lots of industries during this period who are trying to, um, as you write, make sense of the volatile antebellum marketplace, that farmers weren't different in that way. Um, So what are some of those commonalities we see in the fruit story? Okay, so uh, maybe I should take a step back and explain like what is a fruit variety and why there are so many of them and why Please, this is a yeah. problem in the first place. So, um, so uh, people who haven't studied fruit have certainly encountered fruit varieties, particularly in the apple section of the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. So we have we have named fruit in the grocery store. It's uh, apples get named, oranges mysteriously don't. Um, <laughs> so we all we can kind of imagine a red delicious, and we can imagine a Granny Smith, and we can imagine a. Well, we saw the rise of the Honeycrisp, you know, the in our, rise in our of the Honeycrisp. Right? Yeah. Oh yes, and 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 it's many and the Tango. I could, I, yeah. Well, right. <laughs> People send me a lot of stuff about uh, new apples, so I, I'm hungry basically all the time. Um, so when we think about what those are, those are named fruit varieties uh, of the kind of thing that is uh, that is really spread in the U.S. in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and that in the 1850s, I guess, um, that that globally exists rather earlier. So if you take a seed from a Red Delicious and you plant it, or a bunch of seeds from a Red Delicious and you plant them, you won't get a Red Delicious. You'll get a whole bunch of different stuff because apple seeds and other kinds of tree fruit seeds are super variable. So the way that you get a red delicious is uh, you take a piece off the red delicious and then like a twig and then you attach it to a root system from another apple. This is called grafting. Uh, and then this piece of tree will grow into a genetically identical um, uh, individual tree that will grow recognizable fruit, uh, red deliciouses. Right. So that means that all. Uh, fruit varieties, it's not just a smaller category than the species. It's not just like a subspecies, which refers to a population that exists in nature, right? The fruit variety can only be created through human uh, intervention. Otherwise, it's just a tree, 
right? You have mm-hmm. to declare the tree to be a variety, and then you have to cut it into pieces and start spreading it around, sort of like the Morris Multicollis. So that's why this uh, this this capacity existed. Um, and if you want a large population, you have to spread it through a network. It can be spread through a kind of personal networks, or it can be spread through uh, through catalogs, right? So at the beginning of the period I study, there are a lot of fruit trees in across the north, just lots and lots of fruit trees. But most of them are seedling planted trees. They don't have names. They're all different from each other. Some of them are super terrible uh, to eat <laughs> and only good for making alcohol. Some of them are not even good for making alcohol. Some of them are delicious um, and sort of well-known trees. Um, and so what I am interested in is the the kind of destruction of that landscape and its replacement with this landscape of orderly, roughly orderly named fruit varieties. So nurserymen, uh, who sometimes call themselves pomologists, are my major actors here. They're people who are selling fruit trees. Um, they have, uh, a, in some ways, a wonderful situation in that all of these fruit trees could possibly be the next new variety that will become very popular and they can circulate it through their networks and they can sell it and they can be the discoverer of that. But they also have a problem in that there are an almost infinite number of potential varieties in upstate New York and across the North. And because all of these seedling trees could be a potential variety. And anytime there's a particularly uh, fashionable or sexy apple, um, there are tons of trees producing apples that look almost exactly like that one. So there's a problem of apple counterfeiting, where fashionable apples are like people are selling inferior varieties for fashionable fashionable apples. <laughs> there are people selling uh, uh, trees informally through networks that are supposed to be one variety but are actually another variety. Um, right. So there's just this huge sea of fruits. I think that one of the things that's pretty interesting is that it's somehow in antebellum, the antebellum U.S., super important to find out which fruits are real and which fruits aren't. And it's even important to find that out uh, when both fruits taste good. Um, I think part of what we're looking at is the production of a system of skilled connoisseurship, but there's something going on about, about genuineness and the interest in genuineness. So to work out which fruits are good and which fruits are real, pomologists end up using tools that look like lots of other tools being used in the economy. So I finally circled back to the question. Um, So pomologists, who are often nurserymen, often people who are, quote, kind of interested in fruit, and who are often selling fruit trees of a living, for a living, rather, they write tons and tons of book books of fruit description. So the whole book will just uh, be, you know, 300 pages. Page one, name of fruit, extremely close description of fruit. Page two, name of another fruit, extremely close description of fruit. Um, These, I think, resemble the counterfeit detectors, which are these books that are used to tell the very many thousands of different kinds of fake bills from the thousands of kinds of real banknotes that people are encountering, right? This antebellum period in the U.S. is a time when there's just a huge amount of skilled sight necessary to tell the difference between uh, the real, real bills and fake bills. And improvers will sometimes say that the skilled sight that you need to understand the difference between real and fake fruit resembles the same kind of uh, clerk's sight that you need to look at a banknote and tell if it's real or not. Okay, so the first strategy is these books of fruit description. A second strategy is um, fruit profiles, 
where basically you just cut the fruit in half and then you draw an outline around it and you turn that into a woodcut. And there's a sense that just as human profiles are supposed to show character in this period, the fruit profile is going to be fixed and it's going to show you something true about the nature of the fruit. So fruit profiles and fruit descriptions, which sometimes come together, are circulating very widely through uh, improving uh, kind of print networks. And then finally, um, in the late 1840s, improvers start to have huge pomological conventions where they get all kinds of pomologists from all around the country together and they all bring fruit with them. And then they taste the fruit, which is sometimes really gross because uh, the fruit has, has, has been traveling for some time. But they do their best to trace, taste the fruit and look at the fruit and check the names. And then they rate the fruit to see if it's good or bad. And they fight for the reputations of fruit that they are familiar with. And I think these resemble, and improvers actually say that they resemble, the rating systems that are used for thinking about people's um, reputations. In particular, this is a period of time when uh, suddenly credit ratings uh, have been invented. And so actually all of the people at the pomological convention, by the time of the pomological convention, have themselves a file on them um, over at credit rating agencies like R.G. Dunn, um, which rate them as good or bad credit risks and that give them a uh, kind of a public reputation, right? So there's, there are some kind of clear resemblances here. I think that the uncertainty about people and about bills is part of the reason that the realness or fakeness of uh, fruit actually matters so much. There's this great poem that Andrew Jackson Downing sends to his friend uh, that I uh, found in the archives. He writes, this is just the beginning of the poem. He writes, Dear Doctor, I write you this little effusion on learning you're still in a fatal de delusion of thinking the object you love is a duchess when tis only a milkmaid you hold in your clutches. Right? So there's, there's a lot going on with this, with fruit and women. But one of the things that's going on is this idea that, um, that within goods, some goods are, are sort of passing, um, that they are deceptive. And uh, that there's sort of true value located in, in some and not in others. You know, it's so interesting that we're imagining one of these goods as good and one of these goods as bad when mm -hmm. they are so identical that a famous fruit guy cannot tell the difference between them. <laughs> um, and the final thing I guess I would say about this, right, is that they don't ultimately end up coming up with a stable system of value. And in fact... Um, it's really important for their business model that they never quite have a stable system of value because once one kind of fruit becomes widely distributed in people's gardens and orchards, nurserymen actually need a new kind of fruit to supplant it. Um, and so it's a system based on change and novelty. We have this sort of expectation uh, about science's relationship of capitalism, I think, that it's going to produce stable value. And, um, and, and I think that here, as in the rest of the book, that does not hold true. Another dream that falls yep. falls away. Yeah, <laughs> you. Uh, in in the last chapter of the book, we get some folks that that look much more recognizably like scientists mm -hmm. as we would think of them, and you, know, you can conclude by exploring in this chapter how organic chemistry rose to primacy within, and in some cases became kind of synonymous with agricultural science, and. And uh, and some people push against that and say it's you know the, the latter is a broader category, but um, you know, and compared with most of the other endeavors in the book, and this is a book that's about a lot of failure. Um, <laughs> this one would seem to be the most successful. You know, we can draw a line from some of these folks to 
land grant colleges and extension services and all this. And so, but, you know, but the chapter shows how, because surprisingly neatly, these analytical chemists, these button, you know, button down scientists, buttoned up scientists can kind of fit the mold of some of the kookier dreamers we've encountered in the book. Um, and so, you know, they themselves had grand dreams and grand visions, and they also ran into kind of unruly realities. And so can you tell us how, how that works? Sure. Okay. So to understand this, I want to kind of go back to the mixed farm, right? So the kinds of farms that most Northern farmers have, have a mixture of lots of different animals and plants. Um, and we can think of them as systems through which food flows, right? The different animals and plants are feeding each other. Uh, they all have different value. And it's quite complicated to think about how you might make the most money, uh, with all of these different animals and plants in play. So, for example, say you have some turnips. Turnips are a good, you could sell them. But you could also feed them to a cow or to a pig. And the cow, or to another animal, I don't know. Uh, but the cow <laughs> and the pig will produce both of them. Uh, the, the Both of them will produce meat, bone, and manure. The cow will also produce uh, meat. They both produce offspring. All of these things are saleable. All of these things are more valuable than turnips, although... You need to, a lot of turnips to produce a little bit of meat. Um, so people are making decisions all the time about what are they going to convert into what? That's a really complicated question, actually, in farming. Starting in the 1840s in the U.S., analytic chemists start to promise that they're going to be able to make sense of this whole system of eating. They're, they promise that that nutritional value exists, that it's made of fixed quantities of fertilizing atoms, and that they can trace these atoms through the system as a whole. Um, they're able to do this in part because uh, organic analysis has suddenly got a lot cheaper and easier because they're borrowing techniques uh, from continental Europe that have just basically arrived in the English-speaking world. So the idea is they're going to break all of the forms of the matter Oh, sorry, the forms of matter down in the farm uh, into their constituent parts. And they're going to measure them. And they're going to show, say, how much of the nitrogen from the turnips is going into the meat and how much is going into the manure. And then, uh, because they can actually analyze all kinds of things, how much is rising up from the smell of the manure into the air. And they're going to find all the places where atoms are being wasted. And they're going to see what's missing from all the soils and supply those missing elements. And this is uh, actually a kind of challenge to ideas that particular places are good at producing particular things, right? Uh, Like if you can alter the landscape by by moving chemicals around, then maybe there isn't butterland. Maybe everywhere could be butterland. This becomes wildly popular, Liebig, who is the most famous German analytic chemist and whose writings are popularized in the U.S., becomes really a household name. Like companies name themselves after him. Um, All kinds of analytic chemists kind of borrowing his techniques and using techniques show up in cities and in the countryside and start uh, kind of appearing in the different institutions of improvement. And there's this idea that, uh, that these analytic chemists are going to be able to make um, kind of render these food relationships in terms of accounts, which is once again really, really important to improvers, right? So they're going to be able to describe, um, say, the debt that the cornfield owes to the manure pile or the debt that the cow owns uh, to the cornfield, right? They're going to make the whole landscape accountable. Actually, this is not possible. 
it turns <laughs> out, uh, because living bodies are super variable. And as analytic chemists become more and more common, and as they do more and more analyses, and analysis becomes faster and faster, it becomes quite evident that, say, for example, corn has different nutritional value in the middle of the cob from the end of the cob. It has different nutritional value depending on when you pick it and how long you store it for. Um, that's true. You know, fields, if you take um, if you take uh, one sample from the middle of the field, you're going to get something that you, a different set of values than you get from the edge of the field. So this kind of concept of the pure accounted for system, this collapses, basically. And the place where analytic chemists end up making their money is in the shift to analyzing new fertilizers. So one of the big themes of the book is that the attention of improvers often shifts from studying landscapes that exist to studying goods um, and systems of goods. And there are lots and lots of new fertilizers uh, kind of coming out in the 1840s and 1850s. A lot of things that are sometimes new to farmers that are based on new concepts of nutrition coming from the analytic chemistry. All of these new concentrated waste industries are gathering together um, so fish bones and oil or um, uh, offal, which is suddenly concentrated in different kinds of ways. Bone is sometimes concentrated in different kinds of ways. Uh, this is the period of the great, great guano rush and of guano imperialism. Um, so all of these new chemicals, chemical products are coming into the market. And so the job of analytic chemists shifts from what is this whole shape of the system of food to is this fertilizer a fake? Even here, they're not actually really able to resolve the question because it's not clear what is food and what isn't. So hmm. for example, if you find a plaster in fertilizer, you could say, well, this is not nitrogenous. This is not the true food of plants. Or you could say, well, this is actually a building block of the body. Or you could say, as people did sometimes, this is a dangerous plant stimulant that makes plants drunk and excited and turn green and wear themselves out, right? Uh, so there are different ideas of nutrition that are battling in these different fertilizers. And while we start to see the, the kind of ancestors, the people who are going to become the state experiment stations that are going to become the state apparatus of, uh, of agricultural science, they're definitely trying to make claims about which ones of these are fake and which ones of these are real. They are not able to control, uh, they don't control credibility enough in order to shut people down. There's this very famous battle between Samuel Johnson, uh, who's a famous chemist, and James Mapes, who is also a famous chemist and fertilizer manufacturer, in which Johnson and a whole bunch of agricultural journals say, Mapes is a fake. And Mapes says, no, I'm not. I have a different theory of how matter works. And Mapes has his own, he has his own uh, agricultural journal and he has a ton of allies and he has a lot of people writing him testimonials. And so we we sort of tend to imagine that agricultural chemistry gets shunted into the precursors to its, its kind of place in the state. But that's, it has all kinds of other uh, centers of credibility. And actually, uh, when we think about whether these forms of knowledge making end up being successful or not, right, we tend to say, well, did they end up in this? Uh, did they end up in the land red colleges? Did they end up in the experiment stations? Did they end up in the kind of post-war apparatus? Some of them did and some of them didn't. Um, but um, a lot of them have other kinds of descendants. And a lot of uh, commercial 
uh, knowledge making still happens that uh, makes particular kinds of claims about how the agricultural landscape works. And so really, I'm not just saying, you know, chemists failed here, but also <laughs> we can see actually the beginnings of an alternative apparatus, which sometimes uh, inter- sort of agrees with the state and sometimes does not. Yeah. And then in the epilogue, you peek forward after the Civil War and into the 20th century, and you look at, you know, these different really powerful institutions like professionalized sciences or the federal government or you know agricultural trade groups or even mainstream environmentalism and and show how each of these really presented kind of an existential risk to the culture of agricultural improvement and that you, it would be easy to end this book by saying that they had their day and then some combination of these institutions dropped the curtain on them you know and they left the stage um, yet you also then go on to sketch out really all sorts of different ways that elements and effects of the culture of improvement are, are all around us and in, in the discourse and in the lang- landscape and all these different ways. So what are some of the places you see improvement alive and well in, in your daily life? Well, in daily life, um, it's often quite palpable, right? Uh, so improvement coordinates this huge global movement of organisms, uh, not just in the United States, but around particularly the British Empire, organisms that come through improving catalogs that are kind of moving through these systems that I am interested in. So if you've ever eaten beef in America, <laughs> you've eaten an improving breed, the Hereford, right? Almost all the fruit you've ever eaten, if you got it from the store, is a named variety. A lot of it moved through these, these networks. If you have the Macintosh, it is literally a New York improving apple from the early <laughs> 19th century. Um so there is a landscape around us, uh, particularly also the weed landscape, right, has um, a lot of th- – if you start picking through weeds, you start seeing the relics of improvement that are a little hard to get rid of. So uh, a lot of people may have picked clover out of their lawns. Clover mills that sell clover seed that are supposed to s- put clover into the landscape to create – to b- put nitrogen into the soil and change soil fertility. Um, that – is a key improving move and it just escaped, you know, see also silk. So those organisms are all still there. Um, I think if we think about the things that end up not quite replacing improvement, I mean, agricultural societies still exist. Yes. And agricultural fairs still exist. They're a little bit different. Um, I think, I think of the things that replace it, not necessarily as its enemies, but as its many descendants. So, Improvers spend the first half of the 19th century, a lot of improvers spend a lot of time lobbying the state for uh, experiment stations, for agricultural schools, for uh, jobs for agricultural chemists, for a whole bunch of things that happen after the Civil War, right? And so the agenda of those places, and those are really powerful places that uh, uh, set up our modern industrialized system of agriculture in many ways, uh, Right. A lot. The early agenda and quite the late agenda of those places is set by improvers. Like if you go to Cornell, you can still see their pomological connections that are set up or collections, their 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 varietal orchards. Right. That are set up by the people that I study to do the thing that the people that I study really wanted to do. Hmm. Um, So in some ways, it's it's while they this this kind of um, professionalization that accompanies that shunts improvers out of credibility in some places. Um, I think a lot of modern industrial agriculture depends on improvers. But it's interesting, when I talk about improvers, often I find that um, people, audiences, imagine them as being um, the origins of 
either the industrial system or uh, the alternatives to the industrial system, right? Like the organic, uh, kind of the organic food movement and organic farming and so forth. Um, and so people will look back at them either with great nostalgia or with a certain amount of horror. And I think that they're actually the ancestors of both agricultural, kind of industrial agriculture supported by these big state apparatuses and of um, a lot of what we think of as organic farming. So um, when we think about, say, Jerome Rodale, who's a major figure of organic farming in America and bringing organic farming to America, his model for bringing organic farming to America is pretty closely connected to and looks a lot like the agricultural journals of the first half of the 19th century and indeed the second half of the 19th century and indeed the first half of the 20th century. They don't go away. <laughs> um, right. He has a kind of culture of experimenters. He himself is selling goods and he is uh, he is he has experts who are also selling organic goods. Often the organic goods that he is selling are things that were developed by improvers. So. We have a whole world of organic fertilizers, which we think of as, quote unquote, traditional fertilizers, but which are very clearly developed in the first half of the 19th century as industries are um, uh, concentrating waste products on Long Island. Um, so there are some really clear ties. And then I think there's a much less visible world of knowledge making in agriculture, which happens uh, within corporations. And that's something that gets started with improvers, where the experts are often people who are selling the thing in which they are expert. Um, it obviously expands and elaborates, as all of these things do, and it has other um, it has other roots than improvement. But I think that you can see improvement kind of reaching into this realm as well. And now you are part of a cohort of authors who saw their books published in the middle of a global pandemic. And mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of everyone, I'm very sorry for that. But so I hope that uh, in the in the fabled aftertimes that we look forward to, uh, you will still be talking about this book and bringing this book around to people and, and audiences around around the country and beyond. Um, in the meantime, or when that's all over, are there future projects that you can give us a sneak preview of? Oh, sure. Um, so I have a couple of projects um, on the boil, or at least actually I have a couple of projects paused while I deal <laughs> with pandemic related teaching. Um, however, yes. uh, so I have one large project, which is about, which is kind of taking the improvement story and connecting it more directly to the history of the body. So one of the big developments that we see in improvement in this period is the invention of what we call improved breeds, which are essentially what we call the, the purebred. Um, so these are named animals like the Hereford and the Angus and the Holstein um, that um, through careful breeding techniques change dramatically in shape and color and size visibly in historical time. So people can remember a different kind of cow and now cows are in new shape, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty big, interesting public experiment in heredity. So I want to know how does this change how people think their own bodies work, right? Like if you're a racist polygenist and you're trying to argue that black and white people are separate species and separate creations, these very flexible bodies are a problem for you. And in fact, we see racist polygenists trying to explain them away. Um, and this project, this project started as a history of, um, it was going to be called Blood um, increasingly, it's actually morphing a little bit because I think there's a lot of really cool work coming uh, coming out soon in the history of heredity. Um, so I'm morphing it towards now a big project on the history of nurture. 
So right farming is both about genetics and heredity, and also about rebuilding landscapes to shape bodies. Uh, and a lot of animal husbandry is about quite complex uh, uh, kind of interventions into the landscape that are supposed to change bodies in different kinds of ways. So I have a piece out right now about sheep aphrodisiacs in the 18th century, uh, which <laughs> is about how desire in female sheep is created and timed through fake seasonality and also um, beer and onions. Um, so, which is a really important, uh, you know, desire in female sheep. That's an important uh, productive capacity of sheep. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the next pro project is probably going towards talking about how highly manipulated environments in farming and the bodies that they change, change how people think that bodies work. So that's a you know, huge body project. And then I'm also trying to get some work together myself and with some other people uh, talking about the histories of currently proposed solutions for climate change. Um, so particularly the, uh, the methods that are supposed to draw carbon out of the air, because some of those are really big farming projects, like, for example, mass tree planting, huge kelp farms, uh, uh, regenerative agriculture, right? These really, really big, um, really big future farms are being imagined right now. Uh, and I think uh, I'd like to get some people together to talk about it. That's something I'm working on. That might seem like a big stretch, uh, but it is still about pro projections of the future and it's about landscape. So in some ways, it's very familiar territory for me. Well, those are really exciting. And I'm sure lots of us will look forward to, to both. In the meantime, this book is called The Nature of the Future, Agriculture, Science and Capitalism in the Antebellum North. Its publisher is the University of Chicago Press. Its author is Emily Pauly. And you should go buy your copy now. Look for the book with the 20-foot chicken on the cover. Emily, thank you so much for the book and for your time today. Thank you so much, Brian. This is great.